0: On this week's show, we're honored to have back on the program Dr. Berjarano Gutierrez, a graduate from Siegel College and Spurtis Institute of Jewish Learning and Leadership. Our topic is Reclaiming St. James A Jewish Perspective on Jacob, Brother of Jesus. In the past three decades, many books have been written about this enigmatic figure, and we are still at a loss to understand a complete picture of his person. There is even less historical data on James than there is on Jesus. However, he's a crucial character in the saga of Jewish Christianity, early Christian tradition, and the bridge between the many Second Temple Judaisms and Rabbinic Judaism as it is known today. Before we start, let's paint a picture of the situation in the first century. According to Edward Gibbon, the author of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, the Romans had a great disregard for human lives. In the height of the empire, 50% of the population were slaves. They would take prisoners of war and sell them, use them for public works, auction them, or ask for ransom from their families. When General Pompey conquered Jerusalem, he enslaved the rebels who protected their homeland, and 200 years later, the Romans destroyed the temple and took 30,000 people captive. Later in the 2nd century, the last revolt led by Bar Kokhba brought about the enslavement of another 100,000 Jews. The reason that I bring up slavery is to compare the philosophies of these two different distinct cultures. Philo of Alexandria, a Hellenistic Jew, opposed slavery, and the Essenes, who lived in the Dead Sea, were known as some of the first abolitionists of that time, since there was no slaves in their community. Some scholars believe that the reason Christianity spread so rapidly among the Gentile audiences in the Roman Empire is because it brought a message of theistic anthropology which saw every human as created in the image of God, as compared to the perspective of the Greco-Roman elite, which allowed freedom and redemption to only a selected few. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bejarano Gutierrez.
1: Uh, Hello, David. It's good to be back with you.
0: Thanks. Uh, So we're talking about James. To start off, why is it important for Jewish studies to learn more about James, the
1: brother of Jesus? Well, I think that the, the reason that there has been so much interest, even, you know, as far back as, as the 1800s, and I think that if you look at different sources, even in the, the medieval period, I mean, it's a different context because Jews were under uh, physical and theological assault from the, the dominant Christian environment in which they lived. There has always been this interest in the origins of Christianity um, because it's inevitably part of the Jewish experience. And I think that there has been a recognition that if early Christianity could be understood better, um, the relationship of of Jews to Christians might improve. There might be a better understanding of the the Christian message. Um, You know, the the tragedy of of Christianity in the, uh, you know, second, third centuries onward has been that there has always been this component of anti-Judaism and and ultimately anti-Semitism that has been part of, of many uh, church expressions. And, you know, how this came about when you have a, a, a Jewish movement um, has all often confused people. I mean, how can it be that if you have an individual who's claiming to be the Messiah of the Jewish people, who claims to be a, an aspirant to the throne of King David, um, who has a brother who is, you know, committed to the temple and to Torah, how is it possible that there would be this transformation? And so... I think, from a Jewish standpoint, the more that we know about uh, early Christianity, the more about the more that we know about people like James, um, the more that we know about the context of the first century, and all the different elements that were in play. Um, it just you know, it just wasn't Pharisees and Sadducees. It just wasn't the community at Qumran. There are many different strains of Jewish belief. Uh, you know, the political environment. You know. It, before the time of Jesus, you know, very shortly before, um, you know, there had been an independent Jewish kingdom under the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans that had existed. Um, you know, sometimes we lose track and understanding of that, and all these things are important to to paint a better picture of the first century, and perhaps to understand why, um, you know, things have developed in the way that they have. So, the more that we understand the past, it Informs the present and it gives us the ability to to sort of reconsider um, you know the things that have happened between the first century and the present
0: let 's talk about the debate between the Roman Catholic or Orthodox Christians and the Protestants regarding the identity of the writer of the Epistle of James. Some say he's the cousin of Jesus and others say that he's the blood brother since he was born of the in the physical, but it's believed that Jesus had a divine essence, but he had brothers and sisters. Is there any way for historians to find out more about his lineage?
1: Well, there's some information that's recorded in the patristic literature, the church fathers, although the records that they present regarding James are sometimes uh, convoluted, sometimes are based on previous texts. Uh, I think uh, it's the church uh, historian Eusebius that mentions that James was called the Lord's brother, or uh, the brother of Jesus. Of course, there are references in the New Testament that indicate that as well. What that exactly means, of course, as you said, is the subject of debate. Um, Eusebius mentioned that he was Joseph's son, and I think that the, uh, the, the opinion that has been formed in the Catholic Church has been, of course, that he was the son of a previous marriage. Um, what we find in other sources uh, in patristic literature, like uh, Clement of Alexandria, uh, Jerome and uh, some other Epiphanius. There's there's usually very little reference to the specifics of who he is in terms of whether it's Joseph's son or is it you know Jesus's full brother, etc. But there is an awareness that he has a special, uh, for lack of a better term, genetic link with uh, with Jesus. So there is a recognition that there's a there's a bond between them that somehow is related to Jesus's extended family.
0: From the Jewish standpoint, several books have been written about James. Can you mention some of them? And what is the the perspective? How can Judaism or or, uh, different Jewish scholars connect or or reclaim this figure as it's uh, it's known as one of the founders of the original Christian church?
1: Well, I think that the interest in James for Jews and and, uh, academics uh, has been sparked in part by the discovery of the Sea Scrolls. I mean, there's always been this question about the relationship between Jesus and Paul. Uh, Joseph Klausner, uh, in his book, and, and, you know, the early part of the 20th century, essentially painted Paul as the, the individual who transformed the, uh, the message of Jesus into something that was very different from its Jewish origins. And I think, of course, that's the, the, the view that most people have taken uh, over the centuries, Uh, But James has always been an enigma because most sources uh, will recognize that, at least from what we know, it seems that he was very much uh, dedicated and loyal to to Judaism, to the Torah, to the Temple. Um, And so you even find, of course, the reference from Josephus about James. Uh, There's been quite a few books that have been written on him in the last 20 years, I'm thinking perhaps the most controversial one is is Robert Eisenman's uh, James the Brother of Jesus. Uh, Robert Eisenman is a scholar on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and uh, it's a very complicated book, but it really reveals in many ways this complex figure, and, and I think in some sense he's basing it on earlier works. Um, there's a gentleman by the name of Hugh Schoenfeld, who is best known for the Passover plot back in the 1960s, but... Hugh Schoenfeld had written about uh, uh, early Christianity in various volumes. He wrote a book called The History of Jewish Christianity and various other books that were in that, that, along that theme. And he presented James as, as almost this kind of uh, populist leader uh, who was representing the poor masses against the elite, corrupt uh, high priesthood. Um, and what's fascinating is that uh, these individuals, as well as there's another book, uh, James Adjust, by uh, John Painter, I believe, uh, came out like in 2004. I think it's actually called Just James. I, I apologize. Uh, and there's also a book by Herschel Shanks that came out, and also one by Bruce Chilton and Jacob Neusner. What what they all ultimately do is they look at the sources that are found in the patristic literature, and those sources. Depict James as almost a counter uh, priest. He is very much devoted to the Torah. Um, he's in constant prayer. He's in the temple, and even though the traditions are are difficult to follow, they imply that he had special access to the to the temple to the to the holy place. That somehow he could enter. Now, how is that possible? It's not clear. But it almost, in some sense, reflects the ideology of the, of the Qumran community, where they felt that the priesthood in Jerusalem was corrupt, and so they sort of were living out this counter-Jewish uh, community, or the, you know, this sort of true Israel community. Um, and so they're sort of almost waiting in exile for the, for the temple to be restored to its proper uh, station. And it's almost as if James is leading another aspect of that, you know, with his own followers, the followers of Jesus, um, and almost in a sense, the way that James Tabor mentions it as, as, a, almost as a, a, you know, ambassador or prime minister in waiting. If, if Jesus is portrayed as, as the uh, Messiah or the King of the Jews, then James is, is sort of his, uh, representative until the kingdom is established. So, there's been a lot of work done on this in the last 20 years, uh, and roots of it go back even further. Like I said, to the early part of the 20th century, um, and everybody pretty much agrees that James was very devout and committed to uh, to the Torah, which I think is you know makes him so interesting and such an enigma.
0: But let's talk about sources. What makes people think that he was religiously observant from a Jewish standpoint? I know there's a passage in Josephus that talks about how he was being defended by other Jewish factions when he was being persecuted by the Sadducees. Is that where they get the idea that he was keeping that tradition as compared to the common idea from Christian sources where there was no room for Jewish observance in the New Covenant Church?
1: Well, I think it's, uh, if I remember correctly, it's Eusebius, and then there's, I think, Epiphanius, uh, another church historian um, and bishop, you know, derives his sources, you know, from from earlier material. The the, uh, title, The Just, or, you know, James the Righteous, they understand this to mean that it's in reference to his observance of the Torah, So I I would agree that the passage in Josephus indicates that he has some kind of special standing Um, when you find him in the book of Acts, uh, you know, he basically has a discussion with Paul, uh, and he notes that, you know, there are rumors about Paul having violated the Torah, um, you know, violated Jewish law, and that there are this mass movement in Jerusalem, uh, which which holds to the Messianic claims of Jesus, and according to the, to the words that are attributed to James, he uh, describes them as these zealous uh, Torah-observing you know, observing Jews. And so when you put that together with the passage in Josephus, and then you look at the church fathers, they all seem to point toward an image of someone who is very devout, um, committed to the temple and committed to Torah, And it doesn't, at least from what we see, doesn't seem to have any kind of uh, inconsistency with marrying his belief in Jesus as this Messianic figure, and then also uh, coupling that with with his commitment to Judaism, in in whatever form that would have existed at that time.
0: For those who are not familiar with Josephus, he is a Jewish general who, uh, after being defeated by the Romans, he joined them and he became one of their historians. This is what he writes about James. And so he convened the judges of the Sanhedrin and brought before them the brother of Jesus, the one called Christ, whose name was James, and certain others, and accused them of having transgressed the law, delivered them up to be stoned. Those of the inhabitants of the city who were considered the most fair-minded and who were strict in observance of the law were offended at this. So many sources describe him as a Nazarite. Was this related to where Jesus and his family lived? The passage in Matthew, which connects Samson to Jesus, a prophecy about him, is intriguing. Are they talking literally about Jesus and possibly his brother taking a Nazarite vow? Or can they be talking about it as just because they were born in, in Nazareth and the terms are similar?
1: Well, I, th- I think there might be a play on words. Um, I wanted to read you a section that I found in my notes of, from Epiphanius Uh, this is in the fourth century and this addresses the issue of of, uh, commitment to the Torah and also this question of of the Nazarite vow Um, he says but we find that he also exercised the priesthood according to the ancient priesthood for this reason he was permitted to enter the Holy of Holies once a year as scripture says the law ordered the high priest to James alone it was permitted to enter the Holy of Holies once a year because he was a Nazarite and connected to the priesthood. James was a distinguished member of the priesthood. James wore the diadem. And in the notes, uh, they refer to this um, diadem as the nezer, or the sacerdotal plate on his head. Now, I think that passage sort of has everything that we've talked about so far. Um, he has some kind of access to the temple, which is in and of itself fascinating, if, if, if we can believe that. Um, he's acting in accordance with the Torah, as Epiphanius refers to. Um, he's a Nazarite and he almost forms this counter priesthood. Um, and I think in some sense it's almost as if the Nazarites formed uh, what I would refer to as an independent priesthood. And what I mean by that is if we look at the story of um, you know of, of the prophets, I mean there are different cases in which, they function as priests, even though they themselves are not, at least from what we know, members of the, of the Kohanim, of, of the priesthood. And yet they function in almost in this auxiliary mode or this independent mode. Um, and so there are different cases. I mean, you, you could look at someone like, uh, again, they're not specific examples, but just sort of the idea behind it, where somebody like Samuel serves effectively as priest and prophet, uh, of course, Elijah, you know, serves as this dual kind of in- individual uh, in the case of the, uh, the great showdown with the, the prophets of uh, Baal and Asherah. Uh, so they do things that are not typical within the priesthood. You know, they sort of function separately, but almost at an equivalent level. And I think that's the picture that's being painted here, is that you have someone who is so devout and so respected That he has this unique role, whatever that would have been, um, and it places him in a very different position than what most people understand uh, Christianity to have embraced. You know, this uh, abandonment of the Torah. You know, this conflict with Judaism, um, and this idea that that Jewishness or Israelite identity was really not that important. I mean, when I read these passages. I see someone who is very much committed to the people of Israel, um, and, and it can only be understood within that context. Another enigmatic figure is John the
0: Immerser, or as he's known in the West as John the Baptizer. Was he influenced by the Essenes? Some people think he was influenced by the Essenes, and the Essenes is a group that lived in the Dead Sea. So could the information available about him can help us learn more about the person of James? since they must have known each other as people consider Jesus to be a disciple of John. And also, as we're talking about the priesthood, it says, in, I believe, in Luke that John was a part of the priesthood, or at least a descendant of priests. So what would be the connection there?
1: Well, I think, I think there's several elements. Um, according to the Gospels, uh, John is somehow related to, to Jesus. Um, I think it's in the book of Luke. Where there's a claim that's made that Mary or Miriam uh, or Maria, depending on you know Aramaic Hebrew, et cetera, uh, that she is related to uh, Elizabeth, who is the wife of um, you know John's father, and so there's there's some kind of priestly connection there. So you know you know we have to speculate, but obviously we assume that there would have been some interaction; they would have known of each other. As far as the community of Qumran or the Essenes influencing John, I think the reason that people mention that is because of the fact that, of course, uh, immersion, Tevilah, uh, was something that the uh, community at Qumran placed a, a great emphasis on. Um, and I think they look at John and they say, well, you know, he must have come up with this uh, immersion or baptism from somewhere. But I think that the connection, personally, is, is just um, incidental. Um, you know, John does sort of fit that kind of independent, charismatic uh, prophet. Um, there is another connection that that I that I find fascinating is that the the community at Qumran and John uh, shared, uh, you know, the the uh, the view of the verse uh, in the Book of Isaiah that says, uh, "A voice calling in the wilderness, uh, make you straight." Uh, the paths of the Lord. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it goes along those lines. And the the Qumran community literally moved to the desert to create this community that they believed um, would be part of the, you know, the bringing of the of the eschaton. Um, you know, and so John sort of does the same thing. He just does it in a in a little bit different area, but they they have a lot of similarities. And I think that it's also important to note that. The community in Qumran has a lot of concepts that we find in the New Testament. Um, of course, they use terminology like the, the way. They, 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 they saw themselves as members of the way, the true way. Um, and in the book of Acts, we find a reference to that term being used by the followers of Jesus. Uh, the, the Qumran community talks about the new covenant that's, that's mentioned in Jeremiah uh, 31. And of course, in the New Testament, you know, it's you know the the name itself. There's this discussion about the uh, new uh, covenant uh, being brought into being or being uh, renewed or you know introduced by uh, the death of Jesus. And there's a lot of other commonalities. Uh, you know, the the term Holy Spirit. Um, there's a lot of things that the Qumran community and early Christianity shared in common. so I think that's probably another reason why people look for a connection between John and uh, the Essenes. but I, I personally don't think it's as, as much of an influence on him as sort of an older independent tradition that is probably based in this Nazarite uh, you know uh, tradition that you know very few people lived out at that time.
0: Tell us about the Nazarite vow, and also the connection is that the Essenes or the Yahad they, they had an independent priesthood and, and they had their own i don't know if they would perform sacrifices, but they had in a sense their whole temple complex in the desert as opposition to the Sadducees. So what does uh, being a Nazarite entail, and is there any evidence that Jesus or James were living out that vow? in the New Testament or in other sources?
1: Well, in the New Testament, I don't think there's any reference to Jesus or, or uh, James having been Nazarites. The, the, the Nazarite vow is, is described in the book of uh, Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. Uh, it's uh, chapter 6, and the, 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 the word Nazar, or excuse me, the word Nazir, is uh, usually translated as, as consecrated, they're separated and there were basically three components to this vow. Um, they were forbidden from eating or drinking anything that was derived from, uh, you know, from grapes. I mean, you know, wine, uh, vinegar, uh, even raisins, uh, any kind of intoxicating liquor uh, was was prohibited. They were not allowed to cut their hair for the duration of their, uh, you know, their, their vow. And then the other, the last concern was ritual ritual. Uh, of purity which of course of course connects it back to this idea that the Torah is, is extremely important uh, because they're not allowed to come into contact with the corpses or even the graves of, of family members and here I think we have maybe a connection to this idea of the priesthood because the priests were also prohibited from you know coming across graves and, and there were very various restrictions on who they could actually come in contact with when when they when someone died. Um, at the end of the, uh, the vow, uh, there was a procedure where the individual would go to the mikveh, to an immersion pool, and they would make uh, various offerings, uh, a burnt offering, uh, a sin offering, and uh, a peace offering. Um, and, and the reason for that is, is very complex. You know, in, in rabbinic literature, there's a discussion about why these offerings would be made. Uh, you, know, you have an individual who's living Sort of an aesthetic, a very holy life. And then if they end that, they have to present these offerings. And there's actually a reference in the book of Acts to um, uh, the followers of Jesus uh, participating uh, in this process. So, so right there, we know that there were individuals that were, there were other individuals that were taking Nazarite vows that were part of the Jesus movement. And then we also know there, um, explicitly from the text, that they're presenting. Uh, offerings they're they're, they're offering korbanot their sacrifices in the temple so the temple the torah you know jewish life was not something that these individuals were adverse to what happens later um, as the the message of jesus spreads among non-jews obviously is is a different story at least i would argue but it's clear that within the the middle decades of the first century you have a a quote-unquote messianic movement that is very much committed to um, you know the pillars of of uh, of torah life you know which and, and you know ultimately are the temple and the sacrifices that are related with it
0: according to Christian tradition, um, John the Baptist, Jesus, and possibly Paul all lived uh, celibate lives. Is there anything in relation to um, being single and not pursuing a, a Marriage, as one of the commandments would indicate from the Torah, for um, for people who took an asrite vow.
1: Um, As far as I know, no. I mean, it's you know, the not being married was something that was very uh, rare. Um, the The Essenes there seem to have been two different groups of Essenes: some that married and some that were celibate. So they were, again, it's it's a rarity in that sense to have found individuals at that time. Um, that were not uh, married um, it is something different about the New Testament that it seems to be uh, emphasized uh, or that marriage is not ideal although I think in some sense it appears to be related to this idea that um, if you believe that you know the the end of the world or the end of the current um, you know time and space reality is 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 about to change you know the 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 uh, Roman Empire, the you know the, its domination over the land of Israel, um, these powers of darkness, etc. I mean, there's there's many different Jewish movements at this time. You know, what we call Judaism is is in some sense a misnomer because there's many Judaism's, there are many different sects, many different groups. Um, and if you believe that something is is about to happen that will transform, um, you know, the people of Israel, the exile will end, uh, Roman occupation will will end. Um, maybe the justification there is that celibacy is, is needed for that specific time. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's one case that I remember, I think, uh, in rabbinic literature in, in the Talmud, there's a discussion, I can't remember if it's Ben Zoma or, or Ben Azai, uh, one of the early uh, Tanaim, um, where they're not married, and that's sort of, there's almost like an exception given for that, because it's an odd situation uh, because they're sort of occupied with the Torah itself. You know, they're consumed with that, um, even as the the, the commandment is, is understood, you know, that men need to marry. Of course, you know, the, the obligation is there. Uh, and yet, in certain cases, uh, you know, you would find, you know, e- even in the case, again, this is some time after, but, you know, Rabbi Akiva, of course, was married, and yet, from the description in the Talmud, he spends you know, what is it, uh, much of his married life away from his wife. Uh, You know, he's teaching in in the academy, in the yeshiva. He comes back, um, and his wife says that she's basically fine with him studying, you know, for another X number of years. And, you know, according to the story, he doesn't even, you know, stop and say hello. He goes back to the yeshiva and and spends more time. So it's not something that uh, was typical, but I think maybe they considered the circumstances to to dictate that necessity.
0: I don't know where did I hear or uh, saw something that if a Nazarite wasn't married or was celibate, that they would have to make a sacrifice of a lamb. And then in, in some Jewish mystical tradition, it says that um, that Moses was not with his wife once he reached a certain point of holiness. Uh, have you encountered any of those traditions?
1: I, I think I have a recollection of that, but I, I have to be honest. I don't remember the specific source. Um, so it, it's probably something that does um, illuminate those decisions, um, but I, I don't have that uh, off the top of my mind. Yeah, we can cut that off. So... Um,
0: so just for those who wonder about um outside sources that speak about john the the Mercer uh josephus uh speaks about him as well, and it's a kind of contentious um verse because they seem some people believe it was altered by later Christian sources, but it says in antiquities eighteen five two one sixteen through one nineteen he was a good man and had urged the Jews to exert themselves to virtue both as to justice towards one another and reverence towards God, and having done so, joined together in washing. For immersion in water, it was clear to him, could not be used for the forgiveness of sins, but as a sanctification of the body, and only if the soul was already through purif- thoroughly purified by right actions. So it kind of contradicts a little bit of what we get from the Gospel of John or some other Gospels regarding uh, the call that James was doing, to uh, his disciples. But um, again, um, go
1: ahead. Well, it, it, yeah, I, I wanted to point that out because he says that it's not for the forgiveness of sins. Um, I mean, it, it is It is contradictory. I mean, it, it is sort of interesting as to what uh, Josephus is trying to communicate because it contradicts what is, is uh, talked about in the Gospels. And it also seems to confuse what the purpose of immersion tevilah was in the in the Torah itself? Of course, for ritual purification, it's not you know directly uh, related to uh, uh, sin per se. So it's it's sort of an interesting discussion, and and I think we sort of have a a gap you know uh, in that text. Or there's something that's missing, maybe that informs a little bit better understanding of that.
0: In the book *The Jesus Dynasty* by James Tabor, he um, sets up um, like, the way that things could have happened, like, this, I guess this is his version of of the, the facts or his theory, and is that John was a very famous and well-respected leader, and then Jesus was his disciple, and then in turn, I guess, James would be uh, a disciple of Jesus or of John himself, but uh, I wanted to bring up uh, another source. Um, this is from uh, Jerome, uh, one of the 3rd century Christian leaders, he says that um, both the son of Clopas and another Mary mentioned in Matthew 27-56 were at the crucifixion as well as James. Uh, so there's confusion sometimes in and the Jesus dynasty goes into that about the different James. Um, so is this James the same that was there with John and Peter at the Transfiguration or is this uh, different James that is uh, mentioned in the Book of Acts that uh, had an apparition of Jesus later on. Well,
1: well, that's the that's the part that's very confusing and, and difficult to follow. Uh, James Tabor and the Jesus Dynasty argues that uh, the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John is none other than James, in the fact that he has this connection to the priesthood. Um, is based upon, or it's the it's what the later traditions of the Church Fathers based themselves on, because James has this sort of special access and this special place, and of course he has a special respect among the people and among certain people. It's interesting to me, because when you read about persecutions of, uh, for lack of a better term, the early Church, you know, in the, the 40s or 50s, uh, whenever this takes place in the Book of Acts, um, it doesn't seem that James ever leaves Jerusalem. Um, there may be lower uh, people or, or people that are the followers that leave, but it, it doesn't seem that he is ever affected by it. And so it's almost as if he has some kind of protection or status that prohibits the, or prevents the, um, whoever is implementing the persecution from, from touching him. So Robert Eisenman goes into a very complicated and very convoluted discussion about all the Janes. Uh, James Tabor does that, I think, to a certain extent in a much simpler form. It, it is difficult because you have multiple disciples that have the same name or, or very similar names. Um, you know, there seems to be passages that indicate that James was not a follower of Jesus for part of his, uh, you know, before his death, or at least, some, you know, shortly uh, before it, uh, maybe in the beginning. Uh, and then there's some that indicate that you know, by the by, the crucifixion of Jesus that he is a follower. And um, you mentioned that the source that talks about him, um, you know, having uh, Jesus appear to him, and, and that source is also the, the basis for, in essence, uh, a recognition that, that he has a special relationship. Um, I was looking at, again, if this is from Jerome, he says that uh, James had made a vow that he would not eat until... Uh, that he would not eat bread from the hour that he had drunk the cup of the Lord until he should see him, the reference to Jesus, risen from among them that sleep. And then it says that shortly after the Lord said, bring a table and bread, and immediately it is added, he took the bread and blessed it and break it and and gave it to James the Just. So we have that description of, his, of the title. And said to him, my brother, eat thy bread, for the Son of Man is risen from them that sleep. So he has a special standing because... You know, he has an, uh, you know, Jesus reveals himself to him. So, obviously, it's something that's unique. And then, if I remember correctly, in one of the epistles, the uh, uh, Paul uh, makes reference to James, you know, that uh, Jesus appeared to James. So, you know, for that to be described or to be recorded, uh, it gives James that special status. It's somebody who has, you know, the special uh, revelation.
0: In the passages in Galatians 1:19, where Paul mentions that James saw Jesus. but uh, in Clement in his sixth book of Hy- Hypotyposes, he writes that um, for they say that Peter and James and John, after the ascension of our Savior, that is also preferred by our Lord, strove not after honor, but chose James the just Bishop of Jerusalem. So instead of the other James, John and Peter, he picked uh, his brother James. And then um, in the seventh book of the same work, he relates that the Lord after his resurrection imparted knowledge to James the just and to John and Peter, and they imparted it to the rest of the apostles and the rest of the apostles to the 70 of whom Barnabas was one. But there were two Jameses, one called the just who was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and was beaten to death with a club by a fuller, and another who was beheaded Paul also makes a distinction of the same James the Just uh, when he talks in the book of Galatians. But what is interesting is, um, you know, there's, there's a set of uh, books that are called the Apocrypha who are not part of the New Testament or, I guess, part of um, the canon of the Church Fathers by, by Christian uh, sources that uh, also talk about James uh, in the Gospel of Hebrews. Um, it mentions something similar to what Paul would say in, in 1 Corinthians regarding the Jesus appearing to James after the resurrection. And then in the Gospel of Thomas, one of the so-called Gnostic Gospels, um, it says that um, it says the following, We are aware that, that you will depart from us. Who will be our leader? These are the apostles talking to Jesus. Jesus said to them, No matter where you come from, From it is to James, the just that you shall go for whose sake heaven and earth have come to exist. And it's um, that's pretty amazing. um, I think that's one of the most uh, pro um, Jewish or most um, traditional of the verses from the Gospels, um, the Gnostic Gospels, because they're often disconnected to history or not entrenched within. Uh, a Jewish um, mindset they're usually more uh, ethereal and and to a lot of scholars they seem more Hellenistic in nature and here they're saying that James who again if we were to define the word just as righteous or to our observant now has become the pinnacle of of the message of of Jesus in a similar way where he would say that about John the Baptist, or Peter in some of the other Gospels?
1: Well, I think that passage is interesting because it sort of confirms this view of the uh, unique status of James. So we have like these snippets in, in the New Testament. We have the uh, New Testament Apocrypha. Uh, you know, we have the, the Gnostic Gospels, as, as you mentioned. We have Josephus, and they all sort of contribute to this idea that James is the... Uh, the the leader, I mean, he's the guy that makes the decisions in Jerusalem for this uh, Jesus movement, and uh, his authority is unquestioned, I mean, when you look at all the the sources from the church fathers, they all seem to agree that he has, like, this, you know, he's the head of this group, and whatever, you know, else comes from that, um, you know, these independent traditions seem to verify that he has, like, the special status, and I think that you know, there's a—I can't think of the verse right now—but there's a scripture in the Tanakh that says that the righteous are the foundation of the earth. Uh, I might be paraphrasing, but I know that that's something that has been uh, sometimes connected to James. This idea that you know the the, the righteous uh, observance of the Torah is critical, and it's it's actually reflective of of this early Jesus movement again what happens in the coming decades, you know, especially as we near the destruction of the temple, what happens, um, you know, in the second century, you know, that's a different phase of the development of Christianity, but in, in the, you know, 20, 30 years from the third decade of the first century until the right before the destruction of the temple, you have a very Jewish movement, uh, and it doesn't seem, I mean, it might be a competing movement, but it's one of many different movements that are in play, and at this stage it's not a question of are they jewish or not it's it's they have a different vision as far as uh, messianic expectations but they're they're part of this these various groups that are uh you know contending for their vision of what the Torah and Israel should be
0: so uh, you know for our audience, you know Torah are the first five books of the Bible and when it, we're talking about literature, but it could also be the tradition of the of Judaism, and then the Tanakh is the Hebrew scriptures or, or the Jewish scriptures, as some people might know them. Um, so then we get to the point of, of a contrast between James and the Apostle Paul, and there's been multiple books that have been written. A lot of them, um, in a sense, attack Paul as someone who turned the religion into something else, or at least the movement. Um, you have books such as Jesus and Paul by James Tabor, where it's pretty much uh, a conspiracy between uh, James and Paul, and how Paul, in a sense, he's attacking the the leadership of James and other apostles for his different vision. And then um, I lost my thought. There was there's another book where um, instead of them competing, they're actually working in unison. 'm um, trying to remember which one it was um, it just I just lost it It came to me and I thought it was a very important thing because um instead of an adversarial thing or, oh um Daniel Boyarin wrote a book called the Radical Jew who talks about Paul as in a sense a liberal jew who he 's trying to Address some of the issues that modern Jews deal with regarding identity, and instead of focusing on uh, strict adherence, uh, strict adherence to um, to Jewish tradition, he's more emphasizing values, morals, the overall picture of um, the spirituality and um, connection to the greater world. So um, where. Where would your interpretation of the facts uh, come in? Was it that just, you know, James was more strict because of his vows and his commitments, and then Paul was um, more lenient? Or is it um, it's like a riddle that, that up to this point people haven't been able to figure
1: out? Well, I mean, I think that it's a very, you know, challenging question because, you know, there are different approaches to this. I mean, obviously, people who uh, are theologians, they look at it based off the material that they have in their hands. The historian looks at this based off the evidence that, you know, one can can see in front of him. Um, You know, there are Jewish issues, of course, that are very much connected to this because of the impact that a a non-Jewish Christianity, if you will, has had on the Jewish world. Um, I think from a Surface reading, there, there, there seems to be a very different approach or emphasis between James and, and Paul. Uh, again, the, the challenge that we have is that we don't really have a lot of material that we know is from James. I mean, even the letter that is attributed to James, we can't prove that it's actually written by him, although it seems that, from what we know, it sort of seems to fit his personality, if, if we can say that. Um, I think there is some type of tension. Um, that's my personal opinion, um, and there may have been different visions in terms of you know, how to, to live out this, this, um, this idea of, of the you know, messianic age. Um, there was a book written by Bruce Chilton and Jacob Newsner that was, uh, I think the title was Types of Authority. And it was Types of Authority in Judaism and in early Christianity. And one of the things that they did is they talked about this issue of non-Jews. Uh, in Judaism and non-Jews and early Christianity. And there's a passage in the book of uh, Acts that, uh, you know, when James is confronted, I think it's Acts 15, uh, I, I believe it's Acts 15, it may be, um, yeah, it's, I believe it's Acts 15, where there's this issue about the of non-Jews, you know, should, do they have to be circumcised, do they have to undergo um, a Brit milah, circumcision, to become Jews in order to follow you know, uh, Jesus, or is is there a different um, avenue for them to do so independent of of what we would call Jewish life? And again, I don't have the text in front of me, but the way that James seems to describe it is that, you know, the relationship of non-Jews to to the Messianic claims of Jesus are mediated through uh, the Jewish people. And so he doesn't, you know, he agrees that they don't have to be circumcised, but it's almost as if the the mission to the non-Jews is something that is mediated through the existence of the people of Israel, and consequently that benefits the people of Israel. So, you know, how that would have been lived out, I think that's, that's the ultimate question. Um, I don't see where in James' community there would have been a problem with, non-Jews becoming Jews, but, you know, maybe there were different uh, boundaries. I mean, if, you know, what, what Paul was doing may have had some um, general agreement with, you know, the the group in Jerusalem, but their approaches may have been completely different. And I, I know that that, for, for people that are concerned about the theology, that's much more problematic because they want to have a uniform approach but I'm just looking at this from a, a historical perspective and, and trying to look at the text as we have them and what seems to be in certain passages some, some disconnect or at least some some tension, which I think is indicated by the text itself. I mean, in the book of Acts, it mentions that Paul uh, separates from Barnas, Barnabas. Uh, there's a guy that, that's uh, named John Mark who he has a fight with. I mean, these people are very real people. Um, and sometimes we have to keep that in mind. You know, there's real emotion, there's real passion, and there's real zeal, and and sometimes that um, manifests itself in in uh, different areas of life and in different visions of how uh, their message is supposed to be spread.
0: According to Ian e. Wilson, uh, quote: Simon, son of Clopas, who is recorded to have succeeded James, the brother of Jesus, as head of the Jerusalem Judeo-Christian community. Uh, continue Jesus and James' own Davidic bloodline. They're apparently having followed 13 bishops of Jerusalem, some also with the same bloodline. And this is from the book um, Jesus, the Evidence. So um, what is the relation between James and the, in a sense the dynasty of of Jesus to the the other uh, leaders of the Jerusalem church? And I guess that only happened until the destruction of the temple or when... Uh, some of them fled, but um what other information do we know about who succeeded James after uh, his uh, his reign or term as the leader of the early church
1: well we're very limited in terms of what we know. Um, I think that the critical issue that uh, that we should address or that we should mention is that the fact that family members of Jesus continue to be installed as ...leaders after the demise of the previous one, to me that shows that there is a concern for a legitimacy of, of you know, Tabor talks about the Davidic dynasty, um, but also almost as if uh, a concern for a proper transmission of the message of Jesus. So what is the better way to do that than to ensure that the people that have a, uh, again, a, for lack of a better term, a genetic link uh, to Jesus... To be the ones to stand in as leaders, so I think the fact that um, that continues on for some time, it shows that that is it's very important. There's it's a it's a physical legitimacy. I mean, in in the gospels, there's obviously uh, different genealogies that are presented, but they're presented. Whatever issues there are with the genealogies, um, they're presented because the legitimacy of a claimant to the throne of David is paramount to that person's messianic claims. And so it's, it's not, um, you know, for lack of a better term, just a spiritual concern. They're actually looking to prove that Jesus is a real contender for the, the throne of David. And so his family being part of this leadership chain, um, I think just sort of reinforces that. Uh, once they, you know, once the group in Jerusalem is, is obliterated, you know, we're sort of at a loss because we do know of Jewish groups that continue to believe in Jesus, but they're always depicted through the eyes of the Church Fathers, who are, I think, much more concerned about, you know, solidifying what they believe to be Orthodox Christian doctrine. Um, they're not really writing as historians, they're, they're usually writing about these individuals as heretics. So, you know, we, the information that we have about these groups, the Ebionites and the Nazarenes, Etc., it's always through a lens that we use them as illegitimate.
0: Well, let's talk about uh, these persecuted groups. Um, the term Ebionism um, comes from the Hebrew word Ebion, or Ebion that uh, possibly means poor. And does it work with the, the idea that, that James was the leader of the oppressed people of Jerusalem? and That they were uh, they had political aspirations for uh, freedom and independence. Uh, you know, there's been many books written about Jesus being a, a revolutionary, or um, you know, from what is depicted in the Gospels of, of spending time with some of the um, the people who weren't well accepted among the Roman and um, the Jewish elite. Is there any uh, proof of that? And then, in a sense, by them being persecuted by the militant church. They were also kind of the pariah or the people who were um, least uh, powerful at that time.
1: Well, I think it's interesting. In there's several cases in which um, in the New Testament where there's reference to the poor of Jerusalem. So whether the Ebionites were historically linked to you know the earliest group of Jesus, uh, the followers of Jesus, is unclear. But they do seem to have some kind of uh, there's a connection there in terms of terminology, and I think that you do. If, if, G, if James was truly this counter priest, then it's really the the masses, the uh, the underclasses, the lower classes that would have looked to him as this, uh, you know, inspiring figure, the uh, you know, the legitimate representative, you know, Jesus in his absence. And so, those are the kinds of things that themes that Hugh Schoenfeld and, and Robert Eisenman discuss, um, again, we're sort of limited because we don't have a lot of information, so most of it is conjecture, but it's conjecture that's it's derived from um, the collections for the poor that are talked about, again, many times in the New Testament. Um, I think even Paul uh, discusses raising money for Jerusalem, so there is something very uh, tangible there that they, they're supporting. Just like money was sent to the temple, they're sending money back to this the headquarters of this uh, of, of this messianic movement uh, to support it and to sustain its followers. So um, again, we just we have limited information, but I, I do think that there is some link there between these groups of the second, third, and fourth centuries and these earlier groups of the of the first century.
0: And just for for our listeners, Abianism um, uh, in other forms of Jewish Christianity, uh, you know what in the Christian terms, it would be called Judaizing are still considered heresies. So when we talk about there was a group or, um, you know, a leadership within the Jerusalem uh, followers or or part of the Jesus movement that kept uh, Jewish tradition in, in connection with um, belief in Jesus, um, that is, is considered um, out of the norm in traditional Christianity. And, it is still seen as something very problematic because of what we mentioned earlier that there's a, an assumption that a lot of those things are, are done away with and now there's a new dispensation dispensation of um, of belief and faith and um, that type of practice is not um, appropriate and and a lot of it is based on the the theology of Paul and how it was developed and it became something else. So, um, uh, the last uh, segment on our show, we're going to, uh, look into the controversy that happened a few years back in 2002. There was, um, found in the Israeli antiquities market, an ossuary, a ritual burial box, which had an inscription regarding James, um, Dr. Bejarano Gutierrez. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? And so far, um, do people still believe that that it is possibly connected to to James, the brother of Jesus, or has that been refuted so far?
1: Well, the the individual that you mentioned is Oded Golan, and um, as far as I understand, he probably has the largest collection of antiquities uh, from uh, the land of Israel, and I think into maybe areas of Jordan, uh, the private collection, uh, you know, in the world, uh, that, that area. Um, and he has found various pieces that have brought about a lot of controversy. Um, you know, there was, I mean, he was actually arrested and, and taken to court over the validity of, of the ossuary. Um, and the ossuary became the basis for uh, a lot of this renewed interest in the in the in James, the brother of Jesus. Um, in the midst of this controversy over whether he had added the uh, inscription, um, you know, Somebody asked him, I remember, you know, why he hadn't brought this out earlier, because, you know, he brought evidence that he had this ossuary from the 1970s, um, and, and ultimately the court case decided that he he hadn't uh, forged the inscription, but at the same time they weren't the, uh, going to give it validity. You know, they just found that he wasn't guilty of of actually carving the the inscription, but... When, when he was asked why he hadn't presented, uh, you know, the ossuary for review before, he said, well, I didn't even know that, James, that uh, Jesus had a brother, which is sort of, in some sense, comical, but it shows how little importance has been given to James in the past. It's, it's a forgotten figure, and so, you know, the names uh, uh, Joseph and Jesus or, or Yeshua or Yaakov, James, there's such common names he really didn't think anything about it so he thought okay well I have another ossuary that's that's very ancient but um you know somehow he began to do some research and and he had several professors look at it and many of them have maintained from the very beginning that it's it's an authentic inscription now obviously does it refer to James the brother of Jesus well that's another contention but They've always argued that it's authentic, and then there have been other scholars that have said no, that, you know, there are issues with the inscription. Um, but it's added to this, you know, I guess you could say the politics of it, because people are are simultaneously fascinated with this subject. Uh, there was an ossuary that was found some time ago as well of uh, Caiaphas, It was one of the high priests that's mentioned in the New Testament. In that particular case, there wasn't as much contention, because the uniqueness and the beauty of the ossuary was such that there was sort of a recognition that this had to belong to someone who was very high placed uh, in, in Jerusalem. Um, it would be the kind of thing that someone in, in the high priesthood, the echelon of the high priesthood would have. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating because it's drawn attention to the origins of Christianity, and there's been a lot of what I would call pop uh, archaeology associated with that. Um, you know, in the 1960s, you know, you had the book by Hugh Schoenfeld, the Passover plot, and then in the 1990s, there were there were books like uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls deception, and you know, they were written by individuals who were really uh, newspaper reporters and and columnists, that kind of thing. But they weren't really scholars, and so they they sort of engendered a lot of interest. I mean, Hugh Schoenfeld was a scholar, but I'm talking about the latter book. They they engendered a lot of interest because it seemed to, to show that there was a conspiracy to hide something that would give a very different view of Christianity. And though it was basically determined that that's not the case, um, I think the fact that most people didn't know who James was and probably still don't know who he is, I mean, if there's any conspiracy, I would say that that's the conspiracy, that, that James has been largely forgotten, um, and that you have this individual who uh, is historical, who really shaped the origins of Christianity um, it's just that the transformation of Christianity into what it is today um, is usually lost on most people, and so the idea that you know the Christianity of the first century was a very Jewish movement uh, is is not something that as you as you mentioned is is known by most people.
0: In future shows, we will discuss more um, the the situation or how things were in the Second Temple period and we will delve in your master's thesis of what is Jewish identity. We've been throwing the term Jewish around, but uh, lately scholars have um, tried to make like a more uh, informed um, description of Israelite religion of that time, since um, that term can be seen as an anachronism because uh, rabbinic Judaism didn't come until later. But again, the identity of the individuals that lived in Judea and the religion that they practice uh, has a connection to modern day or classical Judaism. So we want to delve more into, um, as we're calling James Jewish or a Jewish Christian movement or the, the followers of Jesus who were Jewish, what did that mean at that time? And we will be discussing other, uh, apostles or members of, of the, the Jerusalem Church, that uh, are important to uh, the historical um, investigation of, of this uh, early Christian movement, and and what can we gather from historical, archaeological, and literary sources. Uh, we would like to thank you for your time, and um, we would appreciate um, to keep this dialogue going, and, and we would like to hear back from Uh, Our audience, uh, if you're interested in this topic, please email us at mysticandskeptic, one word, at gmail.com. Thank you again, Dr. Beharan Gutierrez, for being on the show. Uh, We appreciate your time. Thank you.